Hi, I'm Rachel Bloom, and you know, the only thing better than reading Ray Bradbury is listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Giddy up! Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Exterminate! Computer, status report. Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. No! It's TalkCast 102, and that means we're in triple digits. <laughs> and if you've ever wondered, yes, we do think different at Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Deep in Area 51 at the Sub-Level 21 Biodome, currently housing the Beatles Music Restoration Project for children suffering from little or no musical taste, I am the Dome. Joining the TalkCast tonight in the Revere Time Vortex, it's the hardest-working ha- Halloween costumer on the Eastern Seaboard, our very own puzzle maker, Kriana. I'll give you a hint. Sunshine. And sparkles. Oh, come on! (laughs) (laughs) Dome! From the stack of her personal silent zone in the dank dungeon reading room, she's quiet, but she's here. Zombrarian. Hi! (laughs) From the four-color vault of comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, the personal biographical sketch artist for The Mummy, The Wolfman, Abe Sapien, and Betty Page. It's <laughs> Oh no, they say he's got to go. <laughs> go, go, Dome. And the cute young woman who serves as Muse, confidant, and his personal kitten with a whip, our very own Anne Margaret lookalike, the dead redhead. Oh, can I be can I be Anne Marg Rock as well? Nobody ends at the age of forty will get that personal reference. <laughs> Evidently, the center under the bleachers in the cheap seats of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway has taken awake by Java away from us. So tonight, instead, we welcome artist, writer, teacher, and friend of Sci-Fi Saturday Night, Steve Bissett. Steve, pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me on. It's always fun. Well, <laughs> we'll see always. about that. Okay, I'd like to start tonight's show with just a little bit of a a somber notes. Tonight's show is dedicated to Alex and Joy Tambasia, who lost their daughter Armitage Tambasia on Thursday, September 15th, at the age of 18 months. Alex and Joy, our thoughts and prayers are with you, and uh, we miss you. Absolutely. Yeah, they were our guests on the show, maybe you should have mentioned that. They were our guests on the show, and they were working with uh, Sue and Everett Soares. For the Sky um, Pirates the game. Pirates game, and uh, came as a, a tragic loss out of nowhere for them, and we, our, our prayers are with them. Um, Absolutely. And also, it was kind of a, a weird week in that Steve Jobs, who had just stepped down as CEO of Apple, Two months passed ago. away the other He passed away yesterday. Yeah. It's and, a uh, sombering thought, right? Yeah. There was a guy who made science fiction science fact. I, mean, I knew you were going to steal my line, you that bastard. <laughs> but it's totally true. It is true. That's why I knew you were going to steal it. And through Pixar, I feel like they pushed science fiction forward. Because what if part you think of Pixar? It, well, Pixar has some of the only 
original sci-fi movies for young people that have come out in years. That's very true. Which ones? Every Pixar movie is an original <laughs> No, I hate Pixar. I never watch any of which it. Which one again? I have no idea. Which ones are even uh, Pixar? Well, these indie studios, they don't get much hype. Stupid Pixar. Yeah. <laughs> Kriana, you're fired. <laughs> what has Pixar ever done that's been worthwhile? Nothing. Wally oh. is one of my favorite movies. Oh my god, ever. the stupidest movie in the whole world. <laughs> okay. Before we start comparing it to the Apple Lisa, let's move on. <laughs> how about the how about the Newton? Precursor to the iPad. Yeah, but you see, without the Newton, we would have never had the iPad. I feel like we should go through some of the, the pithy internet clips quips that that have been flying around like steve jobs you're now in the iCloud." uh i know there were just so many of those <laughs> little things that it got to be very grating and diabetic after a while mm. yes yes you know it's just that they, they, it, there was a visionary there there have been very few technological visionaries of that caliber let me tell you bill gates ain't one of them well I'm steve Ballmer, even less so <laughs> well, dance, monkey boy, dance. <laughs> but I mean, you know, ha- having been Cupertino and having been to the Apple campus, it's it's just an, an amazingly weird, wonderful place. I, I've never actually been in any place quite like it, and I doubt that there is another place quite like it. And you know, there's. It's difficult to imagine, you know, there, there are certain people that when you think about the, the visionary aspect that they brought to our culture, you know, it's hard to imagine what it's going to be like now that they're gone. Like Jim Henson. Jim Henson. hell. I mean, it's, well, the whole point of Sci-Fi Saturday Night is celebration of the visionary. He was actually someone who was able to build and create and make real. I mean, seriously, if you if you look at the old Star Trek, the original series, and even Next Generation, and you go, oh, yeah, they're using iPads. <laughs> oh. They- oh, hell yeah. Oh, Why hell- do you think people have been trying to surreptitiously port the pad, P-A-D-D, interface onto the iPad? Because it fucking works. Yeah, I know. I know. Wait, are you saying we have tapped the tip technology? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, well, sign me up. What is your class teaching you nothing, Illustrator X? Really? <laughs> you kids get off my lawn! <laughs> hey, next week we'll learn slide rolls. But anyway. Mm. I'm so happy that, that the technical Luddite is now taking his technology classes. It scares the crap out of me that the whole interwebs is going down. Hey, hey, the Atari 2600 still works for me. The okay. pipes are going to get clogged. It's going to just be a mess. I know. So moving on. I know. <laughs> anyway, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. We'll miss you, Steve. It's uh, been a while. You know, we're losing a lot of jobs, I hear, these days. So. Oh, God, that was another one. That was another one. You know, you know what bugs me, though, is the people who think that just because he's gone, Apple's going to just suddenly tank. Didn't it? Yeah. No. In 1986... <laughs> okay. Not to mention, okay, 1986 is a completely different market and situation than it is right now, and it and it bothers me a little bit when people quote. Wait, wait, tell me about 1986, old lady. I please. was two. Um, 
Kriana and I did not have purchasing power at that point. <laughs> John Scully's a rat bastard. Yes, did Lizzie Lawler really ride the Jurassic Park dinosaurs down <laughs> Times Square? Wow. Okay, what else is in the news, folks? Uh, is there anything else in the news? I think not. Yeah, there kind of uh, is. I think there is. Well, let's. You want to start with you know one of our favorite shows, Fringe. Yay. Yes. Uh, I mean, man, okay, I, sh- I shouldn't listen right now because we're just up. We're halfway through season three, so. Uh, well, we're, we're not. If there's spoilers see. coming off, I'll get uh, off for a few. Only spoilers that it gets better with age. Oh my yeah. god, it, it it just gets so much better. Yep. It's uh yeah, and the thing is, it's done the one thing that most. Fox shows in year four don't actually do, and that is hold their uh, hold their audience. Well, I was going right. to say exist. Yeah, <laughs> that's another one. That was the first turtle. Yeah. Really? First choice. of all, it didn't didn't get the Whedon whack after thirteen episodes. Right. But uh, no, it's uh, it's held its audience very well, and the one show that they thought you know was going to just tear the place up, Terra Nova. Not so much. So we just got on our TiVo American Horror Story. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. It looks pretty awesome. The talk is really good about it. I haven't seen it either. And Have I, you seen that, Steve? I sit through the preview in front of every damned theatrical movie I go to. That's all I know about it. <laughs> I love paying, you know, 6 to $12 and then watching previews for the TV shows I should be staying at home to watch. I don't, I don't quite get the market thing, but oh well. Yeah, they haven't quite figured out that they're, they're actually killing off their own market by doing that. Yeah, but I also have to say, I, I haven't seen the show, but the previews, they build up to like nothing you've ever seen. I've seen all those things they just showed me. <laughs> like many times. With Sometimes with the fear, same actors. So. <laughs> my big fear is they're going, um, it's going to pull in all Ryan Murphy's little Glee fans. And then there's going to be panic, and then wait, 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 wait. who's in it? Driving or something is going to get involved, and then we won't get to watch it anymore because the twelve-year-old's delicate sensibilities were offended. Wait, who's in it? That's Glee? Ryan Murphy is the showrunner for both of them, sweetheart. Oh, sh- I thought that it was an actor. Sorry, sorry. No. I was like, wait, who did I miss? No, no hey, it's. <laughs> I yeah. wanted. I, I want to talk about uh, the whole DC and Marvel in the news here, but before we do... Uh, I think wow, that was an awesome this. segue. That yeah. was, wasn't it? Hey, if that was not going to make I'm those bored. right angles, I've got to do it. <laughs> but, but here's where's where's the one. segue music? Where's the bad segue well, music? Brian, I think, should get a different one. Who's Have you got that? one? But, uh, you should get it. But before we do that, I believe it's time to hear the results of this week's poll. Oh, that was that worked well with the drum. Uh, that was really <laughs> good. Thank you. Thank you. I'll make it very short and sweet. We had asked everybody to, uh, what is your favorite fake sci-fi band? And we gave four examples, the band in Buckaroo Banzai and so forth. And so our top answers, guys... You are so old school. Can I say that about our fans? They are that's, so. That's not a bad thing, though. Old that's not school. A bad thing. 
But the, number one was the Cantina Band from Star Wars, which and I maybe believe that is called, a bad thing. Uh, Max Rebo. <laughs> That's Rebo pretty awesome. And, and leave, something leave or other. Look at Star Wars alone. <laughs> yep. They had the biggest number of fans. Uh, came in second is the diva, the blue singer from the Fifth Element. Lame. You guys have and, crap taste, guys. And the third guys. was the Weird Sisters from Harry Potter. Oh my god, what are you guys, 12? All I know (laughs) is that the soundtrack to Heavy Metal the movie should just just steamroll over all of that. And yet, X, there's only one... You're the only one who voted. How how about... (laughs) What about about the guy in Firefly who sang the song about Jane? He's not a band. Neither is the freaking diva from Fifth Element. He's an independent performance artist. So is the diva from... No. Well, he had a whole room full of backup singers, so there. That, uh, he had yeah. a room full of drunk friends. The man they called Jane, shut up, it's the same thing. <laughs> Steve, you know, any, any votes yourself? Uh, keep in mind the fabulous stains don't count. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just listening at this stage. Oh, <laughs> Christ. Here we I go. I forgot to vote, but I'm going to throw in for Lestat and Queen of the Damned. The movie... How the hell is he not an independent freaking performer? No! Wait a minute. Are you what? going to defend something about Queen of the Damned? I think, I think she's going the there. I think no, she's the going there. No, is the only good thing about that movie, and it is... Suckity, suckity, suck, suck, suck. <laughs> <laughs> it's only good if you're sick or drunk or high or some combination thereof. I was all three the first time I saw it. Well, there you go. So was Drew. Drew had just had four wisdom teeth out and went, this is the best movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and then a month later, she watched it again. She went, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, you were gooned on Vicodin at the time. No, I own the soundtrack, and I just pretend it's not related to the movie in any way. <laughs> Well, Lestat playing on his violin in that movie is assuredly not on the soundtrack. No, it's not. So, you have zero legs to stand on. You, in fact, just fell on your ass. Except the the songs he sings with his rock band are... That's not what you just said there, though. That was totally different. Okay, so exchanging revulsion for abject terror, DC Comics. (laughs) Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before we go to to DC, what's what's next week's poll? Is it up yet, or we have not put it up yet, but we shall have that up for tomorrow. What's it gonna be? Sneak preview? It actually won't be a sneak preview by the time everyone hears this. So what is it? (laughs) Actually, Dome and I were talking about it. Dome, would you like to put your idea out there? Oh, sure, I can do. Oh my god. I could do that because that was actually one of those weird ideas that I came up with. Oh, uh, Christ. The best, the best um, version. Okay. X, would you like to cower under a couch with me? Okay. <laughs> what is the coolest science fiction prediction in a book that's actually come true? Okay, because Jules Verne. Yeah. Well, yeah. You have to think about Spider that. Spider Robinson's out. I've just caught like a bunch of anomalies in his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Twain, believe it or not, talked about the internet. Star Trek uh, had the iPad. H.G. Wells talked about nuclear war. Uh, uh, sh- uh, Did you just say yeah, she in connection with H.G. Wells? Because that would be amusing. I was trying to go in there and then it. She was really hot on Warehouse 13. Yeah, no, sorry. 
So, you know, what in a science fiction book prediction is the coolest thing that ever happened? Oh, there's the lift port thing in Ben Bova. Right. I can't prove Rappuccini's daughter happened, but I'll... uh... But you really wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a good one to look at. So there's your preview. How about space flight in general? How about faster than light speeds? uh, Freaking neutrinos, man! Probably not accurate. Daniil is going to be on my ass later on and be like, That wasn't confirmed yet! I know, honey, I know. How about treating comic creators with with respect and uh, decent... Oh, you are horrible at segways! That hasn't happened yet. (laughs) That is really science fiction. What is that's total science fiction there? Hi, hi, that's Java. He wants his segways back. (laughs) (laughs) He can't have them. (laughs) You know, and it's interesting because we have a, a, a comic creator with us. Steve, who's who's worked in that? You say it's interesting. Like this wasn't a planned segue. It just happened. Um, just the not. world shifted a little bit. Sombrarian. So I'm here. What? Okay, let's talk about what's going on in the Marvel and the DC universe right now. Well, Marvel's pissing down Jack Kirby's grave, but other than that. <laughs> Well, I'm glad, wait, I'm wait, glad. he's dead, I thought... Oh, no, wait, oh, it was I'm a sorry. Kubert did I, guy. Did I, did I put that too strongly? No, you're fine. Okay. <laughs> I think you're being rather polite and reserved. I am. I am. Go for it, X. Uh, no, just uh, right now, uh, the new, DC right now is hyping the fact that sales are through the roof, and uh, it's because they happened to release 52 new titles last month. Um, you know, only a fraction of which are actually available for subscription, so they don't even plan on sustaining this. But now, based on this, it looks like Marvel's getting in the game, and Marvel is planning on rebooting its entire line as well. And I gotta tell you guys, go back and read the original series. (laughs) I actually was fortunate enough to uh, get little paperback collections of the first few issues of Fantastic Four, Spider-Man. The very first comic I ever read was the was an oversized reprint of Superman number one. And I don't care what year it is, these things are timeless. <laughs> Trying to modernize it, giving Jean Grey an iPad, doesn't make it a good story. <laughs> Can, can we just? This is, this is, you know, any sales bump they're getting because they're number ones is not going to last. It all comes down to stories, characterization, and love. Okay, let's let's actually let's be honest for a second. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. It's all Here, about the gimmick. <laughs> because essentially, this is all that's really happened with DC is that it's a gimmick. The relaunch for September 2011. DC Comics had a 35.74 share of dollars spent on comics. That's it. Marvel had a 35.37. That's a half point difference. That is a crap figure anyway, because honest to Christ, like, first of all, what kind of moron keeps track of this? Second of all, that's not, that's, industry, mm, industry, mm, industry, yeah. 
like basically all you can count with that is DC and Marvel, and it leaves all the little guys out. And the little guys are the coolest shit out there. Well, aren't they also just counting the direct market? They don't know what the newsstand yes, sales are. You're absolutely right. You know, they have no idea what the newsstand sales are. Those figures take anywhere from two to six months for them to track. So and not to I also, mention, I also don't know if they released those new titles to the newsstand. Does anyone know? They released some of them, them but not stands. all of them. Okay. Um, I see plenty of the new Archies on the newsstand, but Archie's the best distributed comic outside of the direct market. I don't no get that. What what is that? <laughs> well, they pay rack jobbers. They 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 pay for those spots in in uh, grocery stores and bookstores and so on, and they pay to have the prestige racking that they have the same way that you know the soap opera magazines do and the No, no, I just no, I don't get Archie as a concept. Say again? I don't get Archie as a concept. Like, oh, well. What is what how can I? How can I? How can I do that in an hour? I I don't know if I can. <laughs> High school All right. in the fifties. Dan DeCaro. I, I think I think it's the vast appeal of people with cross hatching on the side of their head. But you know what do I know? <laughs> so something other than a virtual hashtag is that what we're saying here? <laughs> I was using technical talk. I know. <laughs> hey, I know what that is. I learned about inking the other day. <laughs> and what did you learn, Pray I learned that it is not tracing at all. That's true. That's true. And that it looks kind of fun. Wow. That's wow. what I learned. You know inking like I know technology. <laughs> Shut up! I'm, a, I'm trying to better myself here. You're taking a class, and I'm asking questions. Good. I'm not pretending to know everything about comic book making. I don't know Jack. But it's uh, fun, you know. I didn't want to I've met Jack. He's nice. <laughs> I don't think you have. Well, <laughs> I don't. I, since you don't want me to segue, I need more wine. <laughs> well, anybody. Anyway. But anyway. So there's inking, and you take some ink and a pen, and then Brianna, there's a sketch. Brianna, Brianna, get some wine. Oh get right. Wine. X. All right. But wine. another. Another thing that I would like to bring up, um, if our guest would be so gracious, certain certain uh, DVDs have already been hitting, and certain ones are about to hit based on Marvel uh, superhero characters. And while they may have gotten good reviews, not necessarily the best thing you want to invest your time and money in. And why is that? Steve? Well... This is a personal stand I've taken, and I went public with it the day after the announcement of the Jack Kirby Marvel Comics Judgment uh, earlier this this fall, late winter. Um, okay, let's let's talk about that for just a second for those sure. of our listeners. Ooh, ooh, ooh! I've got this. I read about it. Um, so, there's this thing with copyright law where after a certain period of time, artists or their estates are allowed to try and get back their copyrights from the big-ass loser companies who are holding on to them like their, it's like their death grip on their copyrights. And um, <clears throat> the Jack Kirby estate tried to get back his copyright on Superman, obviously. And No, no, no. That was, no. That was Siegel and Schuster. Oh. Siegel and Schuster on Superman. Oh, okay. Sorry. Which one was? Which one was? And Siegel and Schuster and Siegel and Schuster were victorious. The Siegel and Schuster heirs were victorious in many aspects of the 
um, Superman copyright issues, which are now being carefully renegotiated and worked out to the fine-tooth comb detail with the Time Warner and DC lawyers, of course. Okay, sorry. Which which ones were Kirby's? Well, Kirby, Kirby's which Kirby's heirs are trying oh, to shut get up. Kirby's <laughs> heirs are trying to get something on, um, you know, some some sort of share on all the characters that Jack co-created while at Marvel Comics. Which is like um, all of them, right? Well, it's a lot of them, and and part of the points of contention among fandom is that one of the characters that the families. Um, uh, has has included in that list in, is Spider-Man, and that is a point of controversy because oh. um, Steve Ditko and Stan Lee um, uh, had a major role in, in the creation of Spider-Man, to say the least. However, there there is some uh, documentation of Kirby having played a role um, in the early Spider-Man, including the fact that he penciled a portion of the cover of the first Spider-Man appearance. So, right. Oh, that's but, just a but, little evidence there. Well, but that's but little evidence is is the operative term. And but the other characters that they're uh, listing are unequivocally co characters that were co-created by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. And why is it that Stan Lee has the sweetheart deal he has? And why is it that the Kirby heirs have nothing? And, nepotism? And... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. No. no, I just said nepotism, and then I took it back. <laughs> well, no, nepotism is, needs to be raised. I mean, he Stanley was the nephew of Martin Goodman, the, the publisher of, of uh, Marvel. Um, and, uh, you know, the, there is no other editor slash writer at Marvel who gets the deal that Stan did. And Jack... And Ditko certainly don't get the deal that, that Stan got, although um, it can be demonstrated uh, that they definitely co-created the bulk of the Marvel Universe with Stan Lee. So there's there's a lot of questions here. Uh, it, it's a pretty tangled um, legal uh, web. The current judgment was against the Kirby heirs. Um, they will be appealing. Um We'll see where it goes, but it's not as cut and dry as a lot of fandom assumes or or um, airs online in any number of venues. We do have a pretty full document of Steve Ditko, who wrote a 16-chapter book about his collaboration with Stan Lee on Spider-Man. So we do have a public record in writing of the co-creator of Spider-Man, which was brought up not at all, which has been scrutinized almost not at all online, and which um, continues to beg the question, why wasn't Steve Ditko called in uh, to testify at some point, since he's the only other living <laughs> co-creator of some well, of the characters on question. Uh, well, God, Ditko, Steve, of course, they'd, have, they'd have to find him first. Well, he's right in New York. He's still listed in the phone book. Finding him isn't the issue. It's whether he wants to talk to anybody that's the issue. Uh -huh. And the other issue is, what kind of a wild card would he be? Um, you know, in my own lifetime already, you know, if my family were involved with some sort of litigation over um, Swamp Thing, let's say, although there's no reason for them to be, because that was absolutely contracted work for hire from day one, would they want to call Alan Moore in, given Alan Moore's public behavior and, and public record and, and uh, animosity toward me, those may be some of the issues that kept Steve Ditko from being called on the docket by either side of the 
Hell, they could have already talked to him, and he was, like, hostile, and then... Well, maybe, yeah, yeah, that's entirely possible. We don't know. The, the, but, uh, you know, among the issues are the, the argument has been put out there, well, Jack has to take responsibility for what he signed. Well, yes, but apparently he didn't sign any contracts until years after the co-creation of the characters. Um, why should retroactive work-for-hire contracts carry the legal weight that they're being allowed to carry in this case? Uh, not just this case, though, actually. It, it's a favorite tactic of the music industry. Right, and that's all under fire right now, too, especially with pretty prominent recording artists that we could spend 20 minutes listing names of. Uh, so so here, here's, here's what I want your opinion about, and, and I've sort of struggled with my opinion on this. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing when the author, writer, artist, creator is live, but do you, do you think really that heirs should have rights? Why not? Or, why? Well, George, Bush, George W. Bush was president based on being the heir of a fiefdom here in America. And I'm not saying that was we, right either, though. I'm not, well, right or wrong. Heirs and heirs. Well, I'm asking inherit, you if you think it's heirs right. Inherit, heirs inherit land, trusts, money, and creative uh, properties are the coin of the realm right now. So, but and that's they changing are so fast, are, though. But they are arguably worth more than any of those other things I just listed. Really? I think it's worth less at this point and getting less every single day. How can you say that? Because the Marvel lawyers who fought the Kirby family, there would not be Marvel lawyers were it not for the characters and properties oh, Jack oh, Kirby sure there would created. Be, sure there would be, but what I'm saying is... Back up. Based on what? Would Marvel even exist today had Jack Kirby not co-created those characters? Oh, I'm not saying it would, but I'm not saying I think that it's not the creation of the characters that had inherent value. I think it was the execution of the characters. And that may well, be him as well. Jack drew most of them. So. He did, and I have no problem with him being compensated for that, but he's certainly not drawing them anymore. Why is Marvel uh-huh. Comics... What, wait a minute. So let's follow the segment through. Then why should Marvel Comics earn anything off these characters? Why should they? I'm not saying they should. Well, they are. <laughs> For me, it comes down to if Marvel took a fraction of what they have paid their lawyers up to this point in time and worked out something with the Kirby family, we would not be having this conversation. There would not be an issue. They have spent billions defending these properties because that's what corporations do with intellectual properties they are now part of disney and disney is the most hard-ass corporation on the planet earth over ownership of intellectual that's properties. true and um and their track record is hideous with these kind of things and um i'm sorry if it weren't for jack kirby i don't think we would be talking about marvel comics oh i totally i have no problem agreeing with you on that i'm I'm just i was bringing up a different point that i think is an interesting point point but but let me frame that back to you i certainly want my heirs my children their children children to earn off of anything i've created in my lifetime why shouldn't they and why should anyone else let me put this in a different context what right does anyone else have to earn off that stuff it's not the heirs let me put this in a different context all right I was a scientist until a week ago. I publish a paper, okay? Yeah. I, you know, I do not, actually, I don't make any money publishing that paper. Maybe I get a grant off of it, but it's my work. I don't get jack shit for it, should I? Maybe. 
bad deal. You should. I but, just, I mean, uh, this is this is not hey, the case in all things, and maybe it should be, and maybe it shouldn't be. You're now bringing academia into it, which is another whole kettle of fish. I just right. negotiated with a writer to reprint an article he did on a certain aspect of comics history, um, and he had, it's a piece that he had written, and that was published in an academic journal. He was shocked that I was offering $50 for reprint rights on the thing. And in an email that he sent me, he admitted he had never been paid for anything he had written. And he has tons of papers that have been published by academic journals. Uh, sorry, I don't find that a very workable system myself. <laughs> and, well, you know, and, it's what you have to do, though. And, I mean, I feel like that this this system that we're in, in science, you know, you're forced to do it in a certain way. And then in, in the sort of comics industry, you're forced to do it in another very different way. Okay, but comparing wait a minute, wait a minute, them... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's back up, because you're making a lot of presumptions. You started this show by talking about Steve Jobs. Sure. Steve Jobs died a billionaire. Uh-huh. Off money he earned for something he created as a scientist. Sure he did. Well, well maybe not a scientist. For, I think wait, he wait, was wait, a designer. But why doesn't that go for everybody? <laughs> you know, I'm questioning the system. I'm also questioning the moral aspects, as well as the legal arguments, that allow a system to stand whereby a company like Marvel can pop out DVDs of Captain America and have, in fact, settled with Joe Simon. Joe Simon, who was still alive, did sue Marvel over um, Captain America. There was an out-of-court settlement, and typical with out-of-court settlements, a non-disclosure clause was attached. Was. So we don't know what Joe Simon got. And that brings me back to, then why doesn't Kirby's heirs get what Joe got for Captain America? And until they make right with this, I will not spend another penny, penny out of my pocket on any Marvel product that is in any way Kirby derivative. No X-Men, no Captain America, no Fantastic Four, no Thor. They got my money all my life. They're not getting any more. And it's everyone else's decision what they do. I'm not, you know, building a, a collective um, a boycott here at this point. But I've made a decision, and to me, it's a very clear moral decision, which is... Yeah, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's a moral decision. That's more it. Than and I know, I know right from wrong in a lot of basic ways, and I'm sorry. This is wrong. Well, I understand the legal arguments. I understand the various arguments about systems, and this is how corporate culture works, and why should the heirs get this or that. I'm sorry. I grew up reading Jack Kirby's work. I know the value of it. It was one of the things that made me want to draw for my living. And if Marvel Comics cannot find it in their black corporate heart to take care of Irby, Kirby's heirs, they don't get another dime from me. And they'll never get another dime from me until I hear from the Kirby heirs that they're being taken care of. But this, you, don't think, you don't think it's a bit entitled, though, to expect monetary benefit from their... Like, but it's that's not wait, the issue. That's wait. not the issue. The issue is a Guys. moral issue. And the issue Guys. is this. If you're going to settle with someone, you have to provide that equity across the board. Well, you sure. set the standard. And Kirby's heirs deserve what the rest of the people have gotten. And that is a, actually a very, very simple black and white moral question.
And you know, it's it's it, and oh, it's well, I'm actually actually I'm not even arguing that. I'm arguing that Kirby is an exceptional case. I'm arguing this isn't even legal precedent for Marvel having to take care of everybody that ever created anything for Marvel. I'm arguing Kirby clearly created an exceptional, large, still invaluable body of work that Marvel still is spinning off of. And yep. that okay. is above and beyond what yep. anyone else got except for Stanley. Yep, <laughs> you're absolutely right. And the reason Stanley got it was he's a nephew. Was he was the nephew of the publisher and right. he got the sweetheart deal out of it. So and, so basically wait. it's equivalent of of you wanting them to have had stock options basically to pass down. You feel he was that instrumental in the creation of the company. He that, totally was. That they, they should have had some sort of like stock option because he did so much for them. At some point, the message to the entire creative community that has half a brain and a third of a heart should be, why should I pick up a pencil to work for Marvel Comics? Look how they treated Jack Kirby. Oh, you and they shouldn't. And they wouldn't exist without Jack Kirby. At you this should, you what absolutely be, shouldn't. What would it be? No, no, Millie the, what would Guys? we be seeing? Millie the model movies? I'm sorry. That's, you know, <laughs> that's, that's absolutely not what true. we would be seeing. Wait, because before, I, I think the but, same amount of respect should be paid to Han Solo, but, but George Lucas just completely blew that out of the water when he made him ju- shoot second. Okay. <laughs> hey, Java. Okay, Hi, Java. How's it going? Hey, and that, and with Wait, and with stop. that opinion, I enter the podcast. <laughs> Guys, I'm not drunk Go enough ahead. for this yet. Wait, wait, wait! Before we do one more second, I think at this point we should turn this over to another topic. Why? <laughs> no, this we... is a great discussion. I feel like There's we're having a... a really good exchange of opinions well, right here. There is there is another topic for discussion. I am currently but... smoking a pipe. <laughs> No, no, no. However, this is really however, interesting. Hold on, this X. Where do you want to go? However, we could spend all night on this. And the reason we have Steve on tonight is yep. because we want to talk about the what is being done for the charitable efforts towards White River Junction's Main Street Museum. Steve, I understand that you're hosting the filmed version of the whisperer in darkness we we are uh we uh we are we are conducting that's the word i'm looking for <laughs> we are presenting the uh, vermont state premiere of the hp lovecraft historical society feature film adaptation of the whisperer in darkness uh, we'll be presenting it at the Hotel Coolidge on the evening of October 20th of this month. Um, it will be a three-tier event, um, and all the funds raised from this event will be going to benefit the uh, reconstruction and restoration of the Main Street Museum in downtown White River Junction, which was hammered by Hurricane Irene uh, in the last days of August uh, this past summer. And um, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society have just been wonderful. They not only um, uh, agreed to let us show the film, they deferred any fee uh, for, oh. for the premiere. They've been showing the film around festivals uh, throughout the summer months, and they're opening it wider now, and it'll be out on DVD later this year. Uh, but they, um, they deferred any fee. They're allowing us to uh, present two showings of the film, uh, there'll be the official premiere 
uh, at 8 p.m. at the Hotel Coolidge, and there is a second show at 10 p.m. at the Hotel Coolidge. Um, and I can walk you through the three events if you'd like. <laughs> and Please, I can also tell it. you, I can also tell you why we're doing this, other than the Main Street Museum. So, go for it. Okay, the floor is yours. Back in 1928. Let's go back in time to 1928. I, I need a harp. Shh. Why don't I have go. this? Don't you have a sound effect I here somewhere? Don't. Oh, you don't have okay. a harp? No. Oh. Somebody find All me right. one. Find a squid sound since it's Lovecraft. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so back in 1928, uh, there were the uh, Vermont poet Vrest Orton, V-R-E-S-T Orton, who, by the way, is the patriarch of the Orton family who own the Vermont Country Store and the uh, Orton Family Foundation. Brest Orton wrote to H.P. Lovecraft and invited him to visit the Orton family in Guilford, Vermont, Guilford and Dummerston, Vermont. Um, and this was very unusual. This means that Brest Orton, before anyone on planet Earth, including, for the most part, Lovecraft's own editors, recognized and respected H.P. Lovecraft as uh, an important American writer and said that to Lovecraft. That must have appealed greatly to the 19th century gentleman Lovecraft fancied himself to be. Mm. And he made a trip up to Vermont um, in 1928 and spent some time with Vrest Orton. And later that... Uh, that summer wrote the short story, A Whisper in, The Whisper in Darkness, which was set in Townsend, Vermont, which is a real town uh, north of uh, Bellows Falls, uh, actually northwest of Bellows Falls, Vermont. Um, and it was based on his visit to Vermont and the uh, wake that he saw and the devastation he saw from the November 1927 Vermont flood, which up to that time was the worst flood that had ever been seen uh, up in Vermont here. Um, so there seemed to be a certain poetry <laughs> in trying to put together a fundraiser for Hurricane Irene flood relief by tapping uh, the Lovecraft story, which was based on the 1927 flood. And um, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society instantly got the connection and stepped up to the plate. And not only are, are they allowing us to show the film, but they are donating um, signed shooting scripts, posters, <gasps> props from the film that we'll be offering in the silent auction. They have also donated, and David Fairbanks Ford, the, the founder, proprietor, and curator of the Main Street Museum, is making arrangements as we speak. I just read a brand new email before we started the podcast. They are donating the three miniature sets that were constructed for the film to the Main Street Museum. So what? those sets will be visible on display at the Main Street Museum. Um, and even better than that, <laughs> what? They're, make, they're making arrangements for one of, the, um, one of the folks who built the miniature sets to make the trip out to White River Junction to make sure that the sets um, are restored after the shipment and properly displayed. So... The the historical society has just been amazing. I mean, uh, I I love their work. I I've seen the film. I love the film. I 
I love their earlier film, the the Call of Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu. Yes, that which is was what just a wonderful, think. wonderful movie. And, yes. Uh, yes. you know, dealing with uh, the producer, Andrew Lehman, and his partners on this whole process, is just they're just a wonderful group of people and uh, um, have been very generous. So what we've put together is a three-tier event. Um, the first person I called when uh, the need for uh, fundraising for the museum was apparent was I called my friend Joseph Citro, who is a uh, up in these circles, very well-known Vermont uh, folklorist, and he also has a strong following as a horror novelist. Um, and I asked Joe if he would take part in this event, and Joe and I will be presenting a um, an illustrated lecture uh, that night um, about the 1927 flood, H.P. Lovecraft, and his visit to Vermont, among other things. And that will be uh, an event, closed-door event, for people that are able to make a donation of $100 to the museum. Uh, that event runs from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock on October 20th, and there is uh, Lovecraftian food being served. <laughs> I won't say anything more. What does um, that mean? And, and that, that's also where that's also where the silent <laughs> oh. auction will be held. And uh, Joe and I will be giving um, our illustrated lecture to that group. And then at eight o'clock, uh, at twenty-five dollars per ticket. Uh, again, it's a fundraiser for the museum. The Vermont State premiere of Whisper of Darkness will uh, begin, and Joe Citro and myself will be giving a, an introduction to the film. And then at ten p.m. Uh, for $15 a ticket, uh, there will be a second showing of Whisper in Darkness, again with a special introduction by Joe Citro and myself. So we tried to structure the event so that people who do not have deep pockets would be able to participate, help the museum, enjoy the film. Uh, we also structured it so the people who do have deep pockets in these tough times uh, get special treatment and a special show for their generous donation. And we also made sure to set the donation level uh, at a reasonable enough rate that, you know, $100 and you get the Steve and Joe uh, presentation. You get a special limited edition Whisper in Darkness chapbook with illustrations by a number of CCS um, alumni and, and students and special essays by Joe and myself. Um, and we have other donation um, opportunities that will be available at the event. We'll, we'll have a cash bar for both showings of the film and we'll have um, uh, copies of the chapbook available there for sale and so on. So um, so we set it up so that for a car ride and $15 you can see the movie and that helps the museum and we've set it up so that if you're able to spend more um, and can come uh, you get very special aristocratic Lovecraftian treatment. Steve, can I just interject here for a minute? And this is a perfect example of a tiered business model that we've talked about a couple of times on the show. And it's part of, I think, the evolution and the transformation that the various entertainment industries are going through right now and finding a lot of success with where you're giving these different tiers of benefits and it's not just like, oh, well, you know, give us more money. It's actually giving people a very good reason to give you more money. Oh, yeah, yeah, and we want to make sure everyone gets their their money's worth and, and, and it's easy when you're working with a group like the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society who provide access to such a, a wonderful movie. I, the, oh, the they're taking they, really they, good the care film, of you. 
the film they made really is quite wonderful, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun seeing it with a crowd. It uh, sounds amazing. So that'll be happening, and I'll also add that the Hotel Coolidge, where the event's being held, uh, is offering a $69 package for two people to get a room at the hotel that night as well. So that means for people that have to drive some distance, uh, if they want to stay in a vintage Vermont hotel that was constructed in 1927, the year the story is set, (laughs) (laughs) in the middle of October, Vermont, when hopefully the leaves will be at their, uh, in their prime, uh, it's a very inexpensive night uh, to make the trip at $69 for room for two. So, so $69 have, for the room, 15 bucks for the movie, the gas up there, could it get any easier? There you go, there you go. And you go. we'll have all the information up on our website. Uh, right now all the information uh, is up at the uh, www.mainstreetmuseum.com uh, website. You can also find the Main Street Museum on Wikipedia, and that will take you to their page. And tickets can be bought there right now. And Dome um, is going to put a link to it on our page, too. So if great. you're listening to this you, podcast... I'll send, you all, I'll send you all the material. I'll great. send you all the, all the links. We and have it already, and it's going in as we speak, so it'll be up on the website. As you're listening, you can just go to the website, click on the link, and get your tickets, because this sounds damn it cool. Sounds well, so and cool. also, not, not to eat up too much more time, but I do want to mention to your listeners... Whoa, that, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, you are not eating up time. time you okay, good, good. Take as much time. I do want to mention to your listeners that another reason I went fishing for this movie to see if we could premiere it in Vermont is not only is it set in Vermont, but in August of 2009, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society filmmakers spent five days shooting sequences of the film in Vermont, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. Um, In fact, the, uh, um, the barn that appears in the film is a barn that is in Spofford, New Hampshire, and they built a miniature of it. They were actually staying uh, in Walpole, New Hampshire. Uh, at a, they, were, they were split up between two inns uh, in the Walpole area, just over the river from Bellows Falls, um, and did all their location shooting during a very intensive five-day session, uh, including sequences shot up in Jamaica, Vermont, um, Bellows Falls and Chester Station, uh, Vermont, uh, for, for the train sequences, um, uh, parts of New Hampshire, and uh, one of the esteemed Massachusetts universities is stood in for Mescatonic University. Nice. And I'll be cool. posting all that information on my blog, srbassett.com, because I've interviewed the filmmakers, and I'll be posting the interview uh, this weekend. And we'll also have that's, a link to your blog on the website as well. That's Excellent. the attention to detail I love about these guys. Like when in Call of Cthulhu, they use the actual fleur-de-lis uh, building. Exactly. Which Lovecraft hated. <laughs> yeah. But hey, it's there. It's there. And they, and they went way the extra mile with this film by coming up. And I've got to say, the miniature sets uh, are very cool. They really captured a lot of the look and feel of... Um, 1930s cinema with this, uh, with this, but like Call of Cthulhu, which was mm-hmm. set up to be a fake 1926 movie, um, they they also didn't short shrift what's possible with the current technology. The Migus, the crustacean creatures that are central to the story, are amazing in the oh, movie. They are so it? cool. Yeah, they, Lovecraft called them the Migus. Um, 
They are very cool. They are very, very cool in the film. So uh, there's stop. actually there's sound in this one, Steve? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's presented as an early sound film, okay. and it, it's, it's a full, lush production. It's not, I'm a big fan of Guy Madden's films, um, you know, oh, uh, yes. Tales from the Gimli Hospital and so on and so forth. Oh. This is not like the Guy Madden films. They did this as if it was a fairly uh, lush um, 1936 movie, um, and uh, they did a really good job with it. And Andrew Lehman, the producer that's been in direct contact with us and facilitated this whole um, event with the society, uh, does a great job in the film playing Charles Ford. He's one of my favorite <gasps> character roles in the movie. Is cool. he plays Charles Ford? Oh, so. oh total sneeze everywhere on this one, isn't there? <laughs> I, I think I think everyone's grinning like I'm grinning right now. You can't yeah, see much. it through the audio, but I'm like, oh my god, this is so cool. Oh, it is a really cool movie. It is a really cool movie. So, um, so come on up, folks, and help out the Main Street Museum. There's, of course, tons of uh, places in Vermont that need help. But as with the Jack Kirby issue, you pick your battles, you fight them as best you can, and you don't give up. And, you know, the, the day, the morning after the flooding in the area hit, uh, we were okay where I live in central Vermont. We did not get hit hard here, here where, where we live. I will not name the town. Um, but <laughs> when I found out that uh, White River Junction had been hit hard and that specifically the Main Street Museum, which used to house the Center for Cartoon Studies Schultz Library, um, faculty and students that live in White River had spent from 11 o'clock the night of the 28th to 3 a.m. the morning of the 29th, emptying the entire library collection out of the building while the waters were rising. <gasps> And they rescued the entire library. And oh, wow. by the time cool. by the time I woke up the morning of the 29th and saw between Facebook and emails what had happened the night before, I immediately contacted Michelle Ollie, the co-founder of of the Center for Cartoon Studies and my my good friend and, and employer, <laughs> and said, "What can I do?" And she said, "We're okay. The library collection is safe." help David in the Main Street Museum because they were in dire straits. They got hit really hard. So from that minute on, all this event grew out of the emails I sent in that first half hour of seeing what I could do to help out. And um, um, so so come on up, help the museum, and have a great time with uh, Joe Citro and have a great time with the Lovecraft film. I think Absolutely. I speak for everyone here when I say hell to the yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and then some. Yeah. And then for an encore, what are you doing on the 21st? Uh, on the 21st, uh, the Center for Cartoon Studies, in cooperation with the Vermont Law School, uh, we are getting together um, at the Nina Thomas Classroom at the Vermont Law School campus, uh, which is up in Randolph, Vermont. And, uh, I'm sorry, Royalton, Vermont. And that will be at 2.30 in the afternoon on the 21st. And we are presenting a panel featuring Vermont Law School's um, uh, legal expert, Oliver Goodenough. And that's really his name. <laughs> As and, opposed to Boris Badenoff? Okay. Well, <laughs> you, you know, if, you want, if you're going to have a lawyer, you, he, he better be good enough. He I'm sure it'll he appreciates all, you saying that right now. It'll be Oliver Goodenough, and it will be myself, and we're doing a panel called Marvel vs. Jack Kirby, Legal Rights and Ethical Might. And we're going to be 
uh, Oliver is an expert on trademark and copyright law. We've had him down to the school to talk to the students about copyright and trademark, and uh, he and I are going to um, tussle with the legal, the ethical, and the moral issues of the Kirby decision um, and how it affects Marvel slash Disney, how it affects the consumers, and how it affects the talent that creates that kind of material. So um, so if you can make it, come to that. That's free and open to everyone. And I will be posting uh, the particulars on my blog, uh, including a map and directions to Vermont Law School. So um, that will be the day after the Lovecraft event. So if you come up, stay overnight at the Coolidge, and go about three or four exits up on 91 uh, that afternoon, you can come to the event and still make it back to your various homesteads. So <laughs> Cool. And then on October 30th... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Here we go. How's that for a segue? You're um, doing great, man. Oh, wait, wait. <laughs> I'll play the real sound for you. On, on, October, on October 30th, the Saturday Fright Special Spooktacular. It is their sixth Spooktacular. I have not missed a single one of these. It's in Keene, New Hampshire at the glorious restored Colonial Theater in downtown Keene. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 3 p.m., for a $10 admission, uh, they are showing a pristine 35-millimeter print of the original Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Oh. Yes. How cool is that? So, uh. And I'm donating two sketches, which I've already posted online in my blog, which will be offered up for raffle. Uh, they always have an amazing show. They do a whole show with the Saturday Fright Special cast and crew on stage. Uh, they always have, you know, gifts and bonuses for the audience. There's always uh, terrific raffle items, including DVDs, movie posters, uh, original sketches. Um, my friend Dennis St. John, who does the comic Monsters and Girls, uh, is also donating some sketches for the raffle. And uh, it will be a great time because Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman is a lot of fun. Uh, so... And they, and they are a friend of the show as well, we'd like to point out. Oh, yes. We've had, folks. we've had Mark Nelson and the Scarewolf on. They're great. Oh, They're a lot of fun. They're absolutely a lot of fun. They are. They are. You know, they've done a great job with the Spooktaculars. I've been to every one. I went to the first one when they were just starting out, and they showed the abominable Dr. Fives. Um, I think their biggest success to date was definitely when they showed King Kong versus Godzilla because Absolutely. they no oh we missed that one we saw they packed the house that that was a packed house they had you know a lot of it was great to go because a lot of adults brought their kids to see it and it was and you know it that that's the perfect Toho monster movie it's got the wrestler aspect to it it's got the big guys in the rubber monster suits the audience just loved it and that was a lot of fun and. Um, and they've, you know, it's hard to find that perfect a mix. I mean, King Kong, Godzilla, you know, hard to match that. But I think Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is is a good call on their part. And uh, yeah. hopefully, we'll get if the weather's with us, we'll 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 see a good crowd there. Um, I'm definitely going. I haven't missed one yet, and I don't plan on missing one until I have to be rolled in with a wheelchair and a drool cup. <laughs> At that point, I may not be able to get a ride. You know, so. <laughs> we'll pick you up, Steve. Nice. K 
Careful. That's... We might hold you to that one. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine that actually happening, but that's okay. That's okay. I can make a joke about the pens, but I won't do that. I won't. No, do that. That's... <laughs> that's oh, right. dear. Oh, man. Anything else we wanted to mention? Yeah. That's not enough? I don't know. That sounds like that's a pretty full, pretty full October to me. Uh, yeah, I'll mention a couple other things. Um, I, uh, I, I quietly get a sandwich. I quietly docked my my longstanding retirement from the American comics industry uh, for a little part of this summer, and I completed a SpongeBob SquarePants story. <laughs> that, uh, really? Yeah, and it'll Please. be out uh, early next year, and uh, it's. Uh, I'm not going to say too much more about it, except to say it was a lot of fun to do it. So, Please um, tell me that early arises from the depths at some point. <laughs> I and I, I, but I have to say it's a collaborative venture, and I did not get to draw SpongeBob. What? Oh. It's 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 a story in which SpongeBob draws himself into his all-time favorite comic, Merman, and. I drew the Merman comic he draws himself into. Oh, no cards. So, uh, so, but it, so that 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 was my little summer treat to myself, and and now I'm back in retirement. But uh, it was it was fun to play with. And the other thing I'm working on, and I'll be working on into um, probably late summer of next year, is I'm doing um, an art instructional book for Watson Guptill. Uh, they publish. 80% of the how to draw, how to paint, how to do this and that instructional books that have been available since the 30s and 40s. Um, and they came to me and asked me to do a book on how to draw monsters. And that's what I'm working Ooh. on right now. So so, and, so wait, uh, can, we, can we talk about that for a second? Because as sure. someone who can't draw for crap, how, how much do you think these books actually help people? Um, I think they work pretty well. The best books that um, my friend James Sturm recommends, and he's right. Uh, we use the Ed Emberly books at the Center for Cartoon Studies to make sure that even the most sophisticated cartoonist understands that it's all about making shapes and putting shapes into certain configurations and that that's all it's about. You know, everybody wishes they could draw more realistically or representationally or had a, a really great style, but it, it really comes down to you're making marks on paper, and whatever it is that's in your head, I can look over your shoulder and recognize what those marks mean. And one of the first lectures I give to my students every year in drawing workshop is I walk them through basics of style and make the point that I don't care what your drawing style is, if you're making marks on paper and in your head it's an elephant and I can look over your shoulder and I go, huh, it's an elephant, then we're fine. <laughs> huh. And, you know, they're all the preconceptions about what's good drawing, what's bad drawing, they just don't apply anymore. There's entire schools of deliberately primitive uh, art and cartooning. Folk art has been accepted mm -hmm. as a legitimate art form. Uh, we just saw a terrific presentation uh, at uh, the Center for Cartoon Studies just hosted ICAF, the International Comic Arts yes. Forum. We had speakers come in from Belgium, uh, all over Europe, South America, Central America. It was an incredible three-day event. And one of the presentations was about outsider cartoonists, going back to the 19th century, showing the work of cartoonists, some of whom lived out their lives in mental asylums, 
and drew comics. <laughs> and so all that work is, is fascinating and, and compelling and legit. Um, so back to your question. I always answer questions Did this way. Did you say crazy comic writers? Wait a minute. <laughs> no, no, crazy comic artists, but they also oh. wrote their work, so crazy comic <laughs> writers applies too. Um, so, you know, point being, this book that I'm doing with Watson Guptill is um, not designed like an Ed, Ed Emberley book. I won't be showing you how to take, you know, three triangles and, and make a Lovecraft monster out of them, but I will be showing you the basics of working with shapes on paper, fleshing them out into more fully rendered drawings. Um, my philosophy of drawing monsters is, is pretty core to the book, and, and I was really happy that the editors I've worked with on the book were open to that because I design my creatures from inside out. I, I have a, a, a workable grasp of the fundamentals of anatomy, physiology, zoology, biology, and botany, and I really try to think through the physiology of my creatures. They have to be believable to me for me to draw them convincingly. And I will be walking the reader through a lot of those aspects, as well as how do you draw the environments they live in? You know, how do you draw water for a lake monster? How do you, how do you draw air for a flying creature like a pterodactyl or, or a thunderbird? How do, you, how do you draw the woods so that your drawings of Bigfoot um, are more than just a good drawing of a Bigfoot standing in the middle of a white piece of paper. So, <laughs> you know, so I, I do address those things. It's very idiosyncratic. It's my approach to drawing monsters. Um, and, but that said, uh, we have structured the book so that in the latter two chapters, I will be doing a section on inking, which is more than cool. tracing. You are right. Here you go, Brianna. I'm, there's the book cool. for you. I, I'm going to be approaching uh, three or four of, of my, my friends from the comics industry and from fantasy and illustration to have uh, them ink some of the pencils of my monsters and show how the same drawing can be finished in different ways, depending on whose, whose hands and whose mind is interpreting that, the, those drawings. And oh. then there's an entire chapter at the end. Chapter 13 is going to be on digital coloring. And my good friend Kat Garza, who was one of the pioneers of online comics, uh, is putting that chapter together with me. Kat Garza and I have done a, probably about a dozen book covers over the past two years now together where, where he would do the digital coloring and production work. And, um, and we're going to be presenting that step by step in that final chapter, how Cat does the layering of the color, what his decisions are, why he does what he does, and the technical aspect of how he does what he does on, on a Mac. So, Oh, that is cool. So I think it'll be, I mean, it's, a, it's been a fun book to work on. I've got a lot of, I've got months and months of, of very hard work ahead of me, but I'm having fun with it, and, uh, and I'm very happy. I mean, the editor who first approached me uh, asking me to do the book was terrific to work with. She left the company, unfortunately, just as we started work, but the editor that I'm now working with completely understands the project. We're, we're on the same page, and, uh, it, and it's been very pleasurable working with uh, Watson Guptill. And since they're a subsidiary of Random House, the book will be hopefully everywhere, as long as there's still chain bookstores standing by 2012. <laughs> okay, okay, so when it comes out, you really have to let us know so that I can order it from Amazon and then put a nice review on the site. You know it. I will, I, and I'll be happy to come on and talk about it at that point. Of course. Oh, cool. and I think at that Excellent. point, you're coming right back here because, okay. uh, yeah. 
That sounds so awesome, and though. That retirement seems to be working out really well for you, Steve. <laughs> okay. And last, last thing I'll mention, I do have a new book out that came out in the spring, Teen Angels and New Mutants. Um, it's called Teen Angels and New Mutants, The uh, Art, Commerce, and Karma of Killing Sidekicks. <laughs> yes. And it's a, it's a book about Rick Veach's Brat Pack the, the oh. miniseries slash graphic novel that Rick Veach did back in 1990 and 91 about superhero sidekicks and killing them. And okay. now, as you all know, that has become a cottage industry. <laughs> and <laughs> we have, yeah. you know, we have series and movies like Kick-Ass and so on. And, and uh, to me, Rick Veach's Brat Pack is one of those seminal works that has been uh, far too ignored and far too overlooked, and I wrote a 400-page book about it, which is available on Amazon.com, and um, and then I hope some of your listeners will go out and pick up. It's it's uh, it's a it's an unusual book. Oh, we uh, will put a link to it on the on the page. No worries. Absolutely, will. What a dark series that was. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, if anything, reading this book will make you realize how absolutely tasteful Rick Beach was. I get into the realities of the whole pop culture that's built up around teen, uh, teenage performers. And um, if anything, uh, Rick pulled some of his punches. When, when you read about the, the history of the boy bands in the 90s, um, <laughs> you see very clearly the correlation between how the pop industry does work, including outfits like Disney Network and Channel and you know all these multi-million and multi-billion dollar industries that are on the backs of you know, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds who grow up in it. And, uh, <laughs> Montana. Nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, oh, she's in there. Justin Bieber's in the book as well. You know, to me, everything that has to do with Brad Pack and the whole history of superhero, high, uh, superhero sidekicks, which I also trace, Robin the Boy Wonder, Toro, um, you know, Bucky from Captain America, it all is of a piece. And with Brat Pack, Rick really put together a singular comics work that um, truly gets into the, the bizarre, perverse dynamic of these mm -hmm. adult-run media industries that feed off of young talent. Um, and some of the talent benefits, clearly. You know, a lot of people can envy the fortunes that have been earned by the, the Olsen twins and the Justin Biebers of the world, but it has real consequences on those people on a human level, and that needs to be looked at too. So, anyway, it's an odd book. I hope some of your some of you will check it out, and I hope some of your listeners will check it out too. So. Cool. There you hey, go. Steve. You know we we could do like another couple of hours here, but uh, do you want to? Time's up, baby. <laughs> oh, is that? Oh, oh, sorry. Is that what you're saying? Hey, my wife and I got to watch Fringe tonight. So. <laughs> but here's the reality: we're having you back. All right. Okay. I second so. that. Third, fourth it, whatever. So next Next, week, you're up, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> next week, it's September and October, as Jeff and Jess Finn discuss their new documentary film, Strange Septembers. On October 22nd, Kathleen Martin sets the record straight about her aunt and uncle, UFO contactees, Betty and Barney Hill. And on October 29th, Mike Dowdy of Brown Coats Redemption announces his latest, greatest project. Don't forget to go down to the South Coast Toy and Comic Show in Fabulous Fairhaven Mass on November 6th. 
Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Boston Comic Con and of Comic Art House, your one source of original comic artwork. Visit Bob and Kim at ComicArtHouse.com for the best news on our dozens of your favorite artists. Nights out for music provided by Zenoise. Pick up their CD, The Benevolent Beast, on iTunes. Dome? It's been an interesting night, and we've hit just about every possible thing we could hit. Steve Bissett, thank you so much. You're always welcome here at uh, Sci-Fi Saturday Night. It's a real pleasure having you here tonight. Thanks for having me. From the Revere Time Vortex, the sweetheart of the soundboard, Kriana, thank you, and Grammar Girls, Ombrarian, thank you, ladies. Smell you later. <laughs> Bye. From the Four Color Vault of Comics, great thanks to Illustrator X and the Dead Redhead. Alvirazen, baby. Good night, darlings. From Outpost Gallifrey, right around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at the Nymphomaniac Catch and Release Center underneath the bleachers. Java, nice of you to join us tonight. Pipes are cool. (laughs) This is Dome saying, Genie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Good night, everybody. Emergency temporal 